Psalm 51 has a backstory and it's important that we hear it in order to put the psalm into its context. You can find the backstory in the Bible in the second book of Samuel chapter 11 uh, and I'm just going to give you a very brief summary. The psalm was written by David, the most famous king of historical Israel, the nation that was chosen by God to receive his law. And you'll be familiar with that because very famously it begins with the Ten Commandments and it was part of what we call the Old Covenant. David had established Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel and had built himself a house there. And in keeping with the houses of the time, it had a flat roof. And one evening he'd gone up onto the roof and he caught sight of a married woman bathing, probably in the courtyard of a neighbouring house. To cut a long story short, he sent for the woman, he slept with her and she became pregnant. And then David tried to cover up his adultery. He did that by sending for her husband Uriah, who was serving in David's army in a battle. He sent for Uriah on the pretext of wanting to find out how the battle was going. And when, arrive, when Uriah arrived back from the battle, David did his best to uh, get him to spend a night with his wife. He even got him drunk at one point. But despite David's best efforts, Uriah refused to do that, preferring instead to sleep out in the open because all of the army was sleeping out in the open field away from their homes. So he slept outside with David's servants instead. And so David had to come up with a plan B. And his plan B was to send Uriah back to the army, carrying his own death note. He sent a secret message via Uriah to the army commander, asking the commander to position Uriah in the battle in the most dangerous place where he would be certain to be killed. And that's exactly what the army commander did. He made him go too close to the uh, wall of the enemy city, where archers could easily shoot at him. And so he got killed by their arrows, along with some other soldiers at the same time. So the first part of David's plan had worked. And the second part was when Bathsheba, the name of Uriah's wife, when she had completed a period of mourning for her husband, she married David and they became husband and wife. And then maybe almost a year later, perhaps, after the baby was born, um, God sent a prophet called Nathan to David to confront him for his sin. Nathan must have been quaking in his boots to have to take a message to the king that he was guilty of murder and he was guilty of adultery. 
But fortunately for Nathan, David, when he heard the message from God, he acknowledged his sin. And fortunately for David, God in his mercy decided not to um, punish David according to the law because he had committed two capital crimes and he should have had uh, two death sentences passed on him um, under the justice system of the law. And the psalm that we're about to hear was written by David just after these events took place and it expresses his remorse before God. So I'm going to hand over now to Rachel to read it for us. Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offering and whole burnt offering, they shall offer bulls on your altar. Thank you, Rachel. And good morning, Church Central West. And hello to anyone else who may be watching, wherever and whenever that may be. I'm absolutely thrilled to be sharing with you from the Word of God this morning. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible, the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. I ask that through that same Holy Spirit you will bring your Word alive in the hearts and minds of all who hear this message 
who are hungry to hear your word of truth. Amen. Are you listening to this message with a hungry heart for what God wants to say to you this morning? Now, in the last few years, one of the latest pastimes or crazes is getting yourself locked in a room and uh, usually with a group of friends and having to follow clues and solve puzzles to gain access to the key that will let you out. Escape rooms like this are springing up all over the place as a new leisure activity. They're the latest craze to have some fun and test your problem-solving skills. You may think that escape rooms are a very recent phenomenon, so it might surprise you that one existed around 3,000 years ago when Psalm 51 was written by David. The psalm is recorded in the Old Testament, the section of the Bible that contains the narrative of God's dealings with mankind before Jesus Christ was born into the world and especially his dealings with historical Israel. And for the faithful Israelites, it was like living in an escape room in those days. So this morning, I want you to come back in time with me and join David and the Old Testament prophets and saints as they searched for clues that would open the door to their escape room too. And we need look no further than Psalm 51 to discover the nature of the room they were locked in and what it was that they needed to escape from. David expresses it perfectly in verse 5. I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David recognised that there is something fundamentally wrong with human nature from the moment we are born. Now we've seen from the backstory how he was convicted of two specific sins. But he realises, and the psalm reveals, that the root cause of any sin goes far deeper than one moment of temptation and the resulting sinful act itself. All of our wrongful acts and attitudes are rooted in the corrupt, sinful state of the human heart. And so, as the psalm was read to us, we heard David repeatedly crying out not only for forgiveness for specific sins, but also for deliverance from his wicked state of heart of which he had now become acutely aware. Verse 3 For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Transgression is another word for breaking the law. He sees his transgressions for the sins that they are and they are giving him a troubled conscience. My sin is always before me. He can't shake off the sense of guilt that he feels. Have you ever felt like that? Verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. For months David had been deceiving himself. If you read the backstory in full, you find that he was all for capital punishment for a rich man who had stolen a poor man's lamb, and yet he wanted to hide his own more heinous crimes instead of facing up to the punishments that he deserved. 
His hypocrisy was exposed by the prophet's words and he now longs to be truthful and honest instead. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is where David puts his finger on the nub of the issue. He knows that the root of the problem is his spiritual condition, that he has an unclean and sinful heart. Now this heart condition is what theologians call original sin. And all modern psychology, sociology and education is built on the belief that there is no such thing. And therefore we can look inside ourselves and trust whatever ideas, beliefs and values we find in our own hearts and minds. In fact, we can become and do anything we want as long as we only believe enough in ourselves and in our own talents and abilities. The rejection of the concept of original sin in these and other disciplines goes a long way to explaining the seismic shift in the social and sectional, sexual mores of our times and the rejection out of hand of biblical ethics around sex and personhood. But such beliefs are a far cry from what David thought. He had tried to sweep his sins under the carpet. But now that he's been confronted by the word of God through the prophet, he looks inside himself and all he sees is best expressed in words of another prophet, Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? And that's the thing. We are all in the darkness of self-deception unaware of or excusing our sin until our desires and motives are exposed by the word of God as David's were when Nathan confronted him. That's why most sinners, like David did, deceive themselves into thinking there is nothing that bad about them. So let's just crack on and not worry about those niggles of conscience. And before long, the niggles go away and we become even more blind and hardened to our sinfulness. The term original sin is a very accurate description of this state of the human heart from birth, because it does indeed go back to the very first willful sin committed by the first man, Adam. As a consequence, you can read in the Bible, in Romans chapter 5, how every subsequent human being except Jesus has been contaminated with the same spirit that possessed Adam when he chose to go his own way, a spirit of unbelief and disobedience. That's why the Bible describes us all as being in Adam from the day we were born. And that's why David cries out in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Renew a right spirit within me, for he knew only too well that his own spirit was contaminated from birth. So we have joined David in this escape room where he is locked in his prison of sin. 
we witness him going through one of the most traumatic states that a human being can experience in the depths of their soul when they come to a realisation of their sinful state for which they are justly deserving of the judgment of God. When they realise that their sin is not just some bad things that they do, but their whole self-seeking and self-pleasing nature in which they are living ignorant of and independently from the one who made them, from the one who longs for them to return to him. We call this state conviction of sin, an inner knowledge of our unworthiness before God. It is a far cry from the modern trend of self-approval and affirmation of a personal identity and something which goes far deeper than owning up to particular instances of wrongdoing in our lives, although that is also necessary. And that's the hardest thing to do. To own up to sin that wasn't even your fault to start with because you were born with it. To confess before God that you are an unworthy sinner justly deserving to die. But of course the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we know he took that death for us in our place. Romans 5 While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We might be under the judgment of God, but he is for us. God deplores our sinful state of affairs just as much as the convicted sinner deplores them too. So much so that he took the penalty for our sin in our place. How wonderful is that? For some people, like David, conviction of sin and its eternal consequences is experienced as a crisis state of deep anxiety and remorse, perhaps over a period of hours or days or even longer, as they come to surrender their lives to Christ when joy and peace floods their soul. For others, who may have already chosen to follow Christ, it can be a growing awareness over time as the mirror of God's word reveals to them the true state of their heart and life and of their guilt before God. That was certainly the case for me. Because in my first encounter with an evangelistic counsellor as a teenager, he was struggling from the get-go. Struggling because despite his best efforts to explain it to me, I didn't have a clue what he was talking about as he tried to take me through the first hoop of his conversion procedure, which was to get me to confirm that I was aware of my sin. Coming to God with no conviction of sin. How can that be? I thought conversion began with saying sorry for our sin. But don't knock how people come to God. The important thing is that we all come to the awareness of the sinful, old Adamic rock from which we are all hewn. The sinful nature which imprisons us. That we don't have the mindset that as Christians we can start from the base we were at before we believed in Jesus 
and get better. No. All the time we are in Adam, we have no hope. That's why it's essential that we find the escape key. And that's the takeaway point from this section. It's not so much how you are convicted of your sin, how you become aware of your imprisonment and your need to escape. The important thing is that we recognise our moral nakedness before God and don't try to cover it over and excuse it on the basis of what we think is our personal virtue and our own good deeds. Don't leave it as long as David did to own up to his sinfulness. Perhaps he thought he was above the law, that as king he was a special case. After all, the Bible records that he was a man after God's own heart, and that's why he was chosen to be king. But none of that could alter the fact that he was a rotten sinner inside like everybody else. Don't allow a perception of God's past favour on your life or even a previous decision to follow him to obscure your need for repentance if God puts his finger on sin or if you have a growing conviction of a need to escape from its clutches. Maybe David thought he had the escape key all along because of the privileges of his past blessing from God. But I thank God that when I found the clues to the escape key in scripture, I learned that I didn't have to stay put in my prison of sin just because I already knew he'd forgiven me. So you see, it's vitally important that we don't stop at being convicted of sin. Whatever the stage of our spiritual journey we've reached, conviction must always lead to confession. And we have seen, as we've explored this psalm, that it is indeed a thorough, deep and comprehensive confession of sin by David. Such confession is only possible in the light of the self-knowledge revealed to us by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. David's confession wasn't to a priest, it was made direct to God. Verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Against you, you only have I sinned. It's very important to get rid of any notion that we are only responsible to do what is right according to our own moral code, to our own sense of right and wrong, as long as we don't harm others either. That we mustn't offend our own conscience, which ignores the fact that it, that it too is corrupted by sin, and we mustn't offend our neighbour. David blows such moral relativism out of the water. Such ideas ignore completely the design plan of the creator for our well-being and arrogantly dismiss the coming judgment of God against sinners who refuse to acknowledge their need of repentance towards him. He's the one, first and foremost, that you have to get right with. 
Your first responsibility isn't towards self-fulfilment. It's not even towards your neighbour, nor the environment for that matter. Your first responsibility in every aspect of your life is towards God. Each and every one of us is morally accountable towards him and he alone is the arbiter of what is right and wrong in our lives. That's why it's so important to come to him with an open heart and a willing mind and to agree with him about the divine judgment that apart from his mercy condemns you and condemns you it will if you will not agree with him about your sin and confess it before it is too late. So it's vitally important that you set the record straight with him while you have the chance. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. No mention of Bathsheba, no mention of Uriah or his family, no mention of the other fighting men who were killed alongside Uriah because they had to go with him too close to the city wall. Yes, he had sinned against all of them, but only because he had broken God's law and sinned against him. No one would have been harmed if he hadn't done that. We have to face up to the fact that while we must love our neighbour, any accountability we have towards them derives only from our accountability to God. But the great thing about verse 4 is what it goes on to say afterwards. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. It's all sounded so negative so far, hasn't it? Judgment, guilt condemnation, blame, but there's a wonderful flip side to the justice of God. The justice of God which condemns us is the same justice which freely acquits us too. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to demonstrate his righteousness so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The same justice of God which condemns us also takes our guilt away. God is just to forgive us because Christ died in our place. And the great thing about this truth is that the only judgment that matters is the one pronounced in the court of heaven. It doesn't matter anymore what we think about ourselves if we have low self-esteem or a sense of failure. It doesn't matter what other people think of us, whether or not we measure up to the expectations in, imposed on us by social media, or how many likes we get on our selfie posts. The only judgment that matters is the judgment of God upon our lives. Now that declares that we were no hopers from the get-go. So stop trying to live up to your own or others' expectations or goals. It's tremendously liberating when you come to that place of being able to submit everything about yourself to Jesus, laying it down at the foot of the cross. There is true freedom when you agree with his verdict, 
guilty as charged. Because then the light of redemption floods in through the prison window, just as it did for David when he wrote in another psalm, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The same justice of God that condemns you is able to set you free from your unworthiness and from your guilt and shame. And all the pressure to be someone, to achieve your goals or be a failure, is off. To summarise so far, we've seen two conditions for repentance, which is the name we give to the process of turning from sin and self to God. Conditions which depend upon the work of the Holy Spirit to convict us and on our response to confess. And lastly, we come briefly to the third. Contrition of heart. In verse 17 of Psalm 51, David wrote, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, we've already covered aspects of this, so I will be brief. Contrition may not be a familiar concept, and that's not surprising since it's the very opposite of human nature, which is naturally proud. But contrition basically refers to a state of humility and of sorrow and of remorse. It encompasses all of the aspects which we have discussed, which David experienced when he came to terms with and fessed up not only to his sins, but to the sinful state of his heart. It's the opposite of pride because it allows for no excuses, for no self-justification, just plain and simple acceptance of the verdict of God upon our sinfulness. And by the way, don't mistake your own sense of inadequacy and failure for true contrition either. That can be just as much a case of pride if you cling to it, instead of letting it go as an act of repentance when you realise the value that God has placed on your life. When you realise the depths of his love for you in paying the price of his own dear son Jesus, who poured out his lifeblood on a wooden cross to redeem you from your sin state, as Jonathan showed us so powerfully a few weeks ago. We only know we are unworthy sinners in the light of God's view of our sinfulness, not because of our own self-pity. So godly contrition lays that aside as well. Pride is the very essence of original sin in whatever guise it manifests itself in our hearts. At some point, we have to come to an end of ourselves before God can do anything with us. Have a read of our next text. Brokenness. That's another way of describing contrition of heart. Such a state of brokenness and contrition before God 
is the very opposite of the world's spirit of self-acclamation. But it takes all the pressure off to discover that you don't have to be or do anything. You don't have to measure up to any standard. You, you don't have to prove anything to yourself or to others. You don't have to do any of these things to find perfect acceptance in the all-embracing, loving arms of Father God. And that's what it's like when you turn to God in repentance and faith. This is why David can look forward to joy as he anticipates restoration out of brokenness. And from another of David's Psalms, we see that he knows that joy comes out of tears of remorse and new life from the sorrow that leads to repentance. That is the joy that you have when you are as assured of your forgiveness as you were of your sin. And this is why you won't need actual singing lessons after all. Because like David, you won't need any prompting to want to sing aloud of God's righteousness and rejoice in the salvation of God. But our time is gone. And all I've managed to do is describe the escape room. We still haven't met any of the prophets and saints who were trapped inside it. So we've hardly begun to delve into the escape clues. And believe it or not, we're actually leaving David still locked up in the escape room too. But at least we know that in his prison, he is now being blessed by the light of God's redemptive grace shining on him through the window. The grace of God that by covering over his sins has really given him something to sing about. The hope of eternal life. So sadly, but like every good serial story, I must leave you in suspense to find out what happens next because we have to leave it there. Will David escape? But if you subscribe to my channel by clicking the button below, only kidding. But God willing, I hope I will be able to bring you the second instalment another time.